Västafrika var det första området hvor europeisk kolonialisme fotfestet sig. På 1400-talet började det portugisiska riket och sina handels- och sjöfolk längs den afrikanska Atlanterhavskusten i hopp om att finna en sjöväg till India, men också för att etablera handelsstationer, slik att de kunde få bättre tillgång på afrikanska varor. I likhet med India var detta ett område med komplexa och väletablerade stater, hvor vordende kolonimakter ikke bare kunne etablere sig uten videre. Danmark-Norge var en av disse vordende kolonimaktene, som på 16- og 1700-tallet bygde en rekke fort langs gullkysten i dagens Ghana. I denne episoden av Tropemørket skal vi se på statene som eksisterte i Vestafrika, og hvordan unge kolonimakter som Danmark-Norge fotfestet sig i Afrika. Radio Nova presenterer Tropemørke. Episode 3. Vestafrika. Vestafrika på 1400- och 1500-talet var fylt med en rekke store och små stater, olika trosrättningar, språk och etniska grupper. Området var en del av ett stort handelsnätverk och det blev exporterat en rekke olika varor som tilltrakk europeiska kongmakter. I denna episoden har vi inviterat professor John Kwadwo Osei Tutu från NTNU för att snacka om Västafrika i starten av kolonitiden. My name is John Kwadwo and I am a professor in history at the Department of Historical and, and Classical Studies studies at NTNU. Briefly, my area of expertise is uh, African history and then uh, global history. West Africa, like uh, all Africa, itself is a complex idea and a place. Uh, different cultures and attitudes, even though they they are close to each other, you may find variations and co. So then, by the period that the Portuguese began to do the uh, explorations along the coast in the 15th century then. Of course, there were well-established states and empires in the region already, trading with each other and doing things that states do normally. And when the Portuguese came, they had to relate to certain people. In terms of uh, population, then there was quite a substantial number of people in the region. Uh, whatever we say about West African demographics at that time is estimates, because there are no clear records about numbers of people and co. But we are thinking of about uh, Patrick Manning, one of the guys who have really studied and tried to estimate African population over the years, estimates that it is between 46 to 50 million at this particular period people living in that area. That is by 1700, sorry. 
by 1700, so that if we extrapolate backwards, then we can see that between 40, 35 to 50 million around it, but nobody knows. There were well-established languages, Niger Congo languages, groups of people that can people. The majority of people that come, the Fula, the Congo, Mande, More, Yoruba, and all these people. So, so it is a complex group of people over there who really, apart from the uh, ethnicity, also establish clear-cut religious systems. Området vi omtaler som Vestafrika er et stort område. Det strekker sig fra den vestlige delen av kontinentet i dagens Senegal til og med dagens Nigeria og Niger i øst. Gullkysten, som ligger i dagens Ghana, var området hvor Danmark-Norge etablerte handelsfort i Afrika. Dette var ikke et ubebodd område. Konfederationer og kongedømmer som Akan, Aquanu og Fante hade sofistikerade statsstrukturer som hade mycket till felles med samtidiga stater i Europa. All these states that we're talking about were centralized states. Power uh, centralized states and kingdoms as we may want to call them. A federation of smaller groups of people doing different kinds of economic activity but ruled by a king. And of course, the idea of power in this system is quite unique in this sense of, uh, as you ask now, a council of elders. The, uh, so then we are talking now about consensus governance, isn't it? Some people say democratic kind of governance, but of course here is a council of elders, a council of wise people who counsel the king so the, can, the king cannot take a decision without consultation in council. So the council has to advise the king on what to do. So that uh, is the king ruling in council. But of course, the, the governance is a monarchical inherited system by inheritance. And then also, at some point, the king's power, in many cases, had to relate to some divinity, some mythical origins. It's not very different from the European power system at this particular period, where the uh, spiritual mediums, in, in this case where there's some spiritual power, traditional power, lies behind the king, who consults. That is why we say that within the West African Golko system, spirit mediums are very powerful people. They are people, particularly they were women. Many of them were women. And they stand between the political power and the spiritual world. They stand between because they interpret the spiritual message to the state. So that these people can, in fact, sometimes I think about it and say, these people can even impose their political views, their political directions on what to do because they interpret what the gods are saying. Uh, the gods say we must do this. And so the spirit mediums, uh, this you call, today in, in modern terms, you say the priest, the priest or the bishop or whoever they are, because they have these hierarchies too among them. 
So they are also included in the government. So we have this council of elders, we have the king, we have the, uh, we have the divine, the straight mediums who are in the middle, all working together. Uh, and then the council of elders are normally, normally the heads of the main families. Because uh, political systems consisted of this federation of, uh, of clans. And these clan elders then will form the council of elders, the council of the wise men. So in that way, then, in one way, the power of the king will be checked by it. Then there's another final thing which is very interesting here about this uh, power system. The role of the queen mother, the queen, or what we call the queen mother. In Norwegian, you say dronin's mood, but it's a different kind of idea in the sense of it. Uh, the queen mother is usually the mother of the king. And it is she who appoints who of her children should become a king. So that this woman, this mother, plays mother to the king, but is also mother to the nation. And then she uses her power to balance between her son. She can control her son's behavior. If she is doing bad, he can control her in a certain way and advise him uh, in that sense of it. So the queen mother becomes a power by itself within the structure, a check in the system. So this structure of checks and balances are built into it. Of course, you know, human, human institutions are corruptible. You know that we, we all know that human institutions can be corruptible. So we cannot say that because of this structure, then the system worked so, uh, we call it, seamlessly uh, or effortlessly. Uh, the, the, the people, people could have abused power because in centralized states where the king has all this power concentrated in him, all this economic power, then, of course, they can use this influence. So there is a possibility that this happens. So sometimes you see that in the society, some kings will be removed by their people because they have become uh, autocratic in many ways or for many other sins that they have committed. So the removal of kings, dethronement, as we call it. So that's why the fact that there's this ritual backing, there's also the possibility to remove a king for a misdemeanor. And that this helped to let the consensus governance work in a, a better way. Disse statene var ikke isolerte. Vestafrika var koblet til resten av verden gjennom et stort handelsnettverk som strakk sig over store deler av Afrika og videre til Midtøsten og Europa. All these areas were linked to international trade first through the Saharan trade. But then there was local trade along the coasts. Because they didn't have very large ocean-going vessels, they had, they had these big canoes where people traded along the coast and they, they, they navigated close to the coast. So uh, the using of open dark boats and then sails became very common. And it is true this, that we see the trading among people along the coast from one state to the other. And then also uh, even right down to Angola. So the West African area was actually a region of inter-trade activity using the, uh, the coastal Atlantic at this particular period. 
But I, I would say that the major trade, actually, the major trade then would be that they would, in the end, push these items through the Sahara because that is the most lucrative area to trade at this particular period. So it's the kind of relay trade. They traded on the coast, gold and everything that they could get, went inside and sold it, and then other people relayed it. Other traders relayed it across into the regions to reach southern Europe. And of course, that is what whetted the appetite of the Portuguese, the Iberians, to begin to explore the coast of Africa by the 15th century, to get to the gold. Portugal was the dominant Iberian power in the 15th century on the Gold Coast. So that, that also falls within this Atlantic whole structure. Uh, this Iberian solution between Spain and Portugal, where Spain concentrates in the Americas and then Portugal concentrates in uh, Africa and the Old World, particularly apart from Brazil, which was, they got their share in. Uh, how? 1482, the first fort is established. The modern day Elmina Castle, as we call it, but Saoyoge Damina was established in Madrid. So, so uh, in, in uh, Elmina, in uh, the central region of Ghana today. Now, the Portuguese actually tried to establish the 1482 is the major permanent establishment. The strongest fort was built. But before then, it had made a force to establish other places in Accra, for example. Okay, and then in other coastal towns, because the gold was there, iron, uh, it was going for the gold at this particular period. But in Accra and many other coastal areas, they were chased away because the Portuguese came with the Iberian idea of colonization became a kind of overbearing in that sense of it. In many places, they were perceived, particularly Accra, perceived as trying to impose themselves on the indigenous states, which most of the kings would not allow to happen. So that it is when they, they began to see the relationship as equal, and then they began to see Elmina as a, a point where they can uh, they get the gold from Ashanti, from the forest, that they they asked permission to build a castle. And they were given permission. They leased the land to build the castle on. In Accra, where Christian Borg Castle is standing, the Danish-Norwegian Christian Borg Castle is standing, they also tried something around that area. That place has been rebuilt over and over. But we, we don't see traces of that uh, Portuguese presence. Or do we see it anywhere? It is in Saljogi uh, Damina, Elmina today, that we see the strongest but it is their behavior. Because of their behavior, their colonizing behavior, their Christianizing behavior, they were not tolerated in many places. So not only on the Gold Coast, in Benin and many parts of West Africa, they were driven off, actually, because, they were, because of their colonizing and Christianizing attempts in all those places until they moved to Angola. Uh, they, they moved to Congo, where they actually succeeded. So for the Gold Coast, their concentration there was 
when they be, they, the, their permanent presence was established through this fort and through this kind of respectful lease of land to establish and buy the gold at the place. På många måter fulgte koloniseringen av Västafrika och guldkusten det samma mönstret som vi så i India i förra episoden. Först kom portugiserna som etablerade handelsstationer och handelsfort på 14- och 1500-talet. Efter en stund började andra europeiska kungdomar att lägga märke till alla dessa rikdomar som Portugal fick tillgång till och så sände de sina egna expeditioner så att inte de skulle stå utanför. The Portuguese, the Dutch, the English, the Danes and the Norwegians, Sweden, the Brandenburgers, as I call them, the Prussians, all were there. What were they looking for? Was it land? I think the situation is in Gold Coast at that time is different from the Americas. Uh, and of course, they started establishing here before Christopher, Christopher Columbus went to America. Uh, the Portuguese, I mean. And uh, the situation was a bit different because then there were already well-established powerful states who were unwilling to allow the Europeans to seize their land. So then at this particular period, the, the, the action, the fortification buildings of the Europeans was not about taking land as such. It was about control of the trade, profit making control of the trade, the gold trade. Then when the trading and slave people came up, it became the major activity. That is why you see the, the, the competition to build forts all over the place. And the Gold Coast, as I always say, has the largest concentration, remains of concentration, or had the largest concentration of European forts. But when we look at the statistics, Gold Coast also exported uh, less number of uh, the least number of uh, enslaved people than, for example, Angola, even though it had the largest number of also. So then, uh, these Europeans competed with each other, mostly. They competed with each other to get the most lucrative trade coming from the forest. The trade in gold, the trade in other commodities, but also the trade in enslaved people at this particular period. So at this time, the aim is not colonization. Even though the Portuguese tried it, they failed with that one. They were driven away. But the later groups, when they came, were more interested in the trade. And then what happened then? Forming alliance systems with local states. You know, at this time, two local states were at war and competing with each other also. Uh, when bigger states come in eating up smaller ones, Asante rising and then trying to take up the coast, control the trade on the coast. So then alliance systems between these Europeans and these Africans were states were very very important. And, and for m- most of these African states too, it was a kind of what prestige to have a relation to European and control the trade to, to increase its own wealth. Danmark-Norge etablerte sig på guldkysten på 1650-tallet. 
En rekke handelsfort som strakt seg langs den østlige delen av gullkysten kommer til å bli Danmark-Norges koloniale besittelse i Afrika. Danmark-Norge did establish a lot of things on the Gold Coast. But they were not the most powerful in the area. Actually, Danmark-Norge relied very much on the benevolence of the local allies in many ways because they didn't have a strong force military force to protect this vast expanse of uh, uh, of possessions that they had from Accra to Keta in the east over there the most powerful group in the end were of course the british and the dutch who also slogged it out in the end the british becoming the most powerful so it is the british influence that you see when you go to the Gold Coast, or you go to Ghana, now, you see the British influence. But, uh, but let me just jump to this one. There was a question you asked about the impact, whether we see any of the things of the Danish Norwegian. Yes, we do. For the, uh, the Danish Norwegian, one of the advantages of the Danish Norwegian possessions is that they were contagious. They were concentrated on the eastern part of the Gold Coast, of the Gold Coast, from Accra to the east. There was no other European power between them, whereas the British, the French, the British, the the, uh, the Brandenburgers, the Dutch, competed in the west. Uh, the the, uh, the Danes and Norwegians had a contiguous territory, building their forts and trading in those areas, monopolizing the trade. So we see the remnants of this, the domination of the landscape by the remnants of this plantation and then the trade infrastructure, the force and the castles and the plantation systems that they established after the slave trade was abolished in 1812. Then also, when you go to those areas you, and you, are, uh, you go to Ghana and you go to Osu, for example, Christianburg area, and you, you, you pay attention you hear names like Hansen, Wolf, etc. These are Danish Norwegian names, which have remained again, become local. One, because many of these uh, traders interacted with Africans, married African women, gave birth to children. So the ancestors are there. They are, they are at, at Komere, some you say in Norwegian. They are there and have this in particular, the Wolf House, which has become a tourist attraction. In, in Ghana. So you hear this name culturally. And then also, we also see that these buildings, these areas become, have become cultural tourist sites where people visit, particularly Scandinavians. When we go to Ghana, normally we go to these places to see the, 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 the cemetery, the Danish cemetery, which is in front of the castle, the German cemetery, which is close by, and then uh, Wolf's house. Wolf died in Ghana. And uh, Gold Coast, and he was buried in his house. So we, you see the tomb of this kind of thing. Then, of course, the biggest influence that you see, even though the British were dominant politically after 1850, when the Danish the, the, uh, the Danes sold their forts, you see Christian Borg Castle. It remained the powerhouse, political powerhouse of Ghana until 2008. It was the headquarters of the, of the Danish company, West India Company. It was also the headquarters of the British colonial administration, 
from 1870s to 1950s, and then it continued to be the headquarters of the Ghana government until 2008. So that is how the Dedish and Norwegian uh, remnants have impacted the landscape, the politics and the cultural landscape of these areas. Västafrika har blivit starkt präglat av västlig imperialism. I likhet med det vi snakket om forrige episode med India, så spilte ikke Danmark-Norge den største rollen, men som vi kommer til å se videre i denne serien, så har Danmark-Norge vært litt mer en, en fotnote i ganesisk historie. 120 000 mennesker blev tvunget på dansk-norske slaveskip, hvorav omtrent 20 000 døde på veien. Vi skal komme tilbake til fortene langs gullkysten. Men i den nästa episoden av Tropemørket så ska vi avsluta kontextserien vår, om vi kan kalla det det, och se på Karibia. Ett område som blev rasert av spanjolerna efter Christopher Columbus ankom i 1492 för så bli till någon av de mest brutala kolonierna i mänsklighetens historia. Du har hört på Tropemörke. Producerat av Olav Vidsvang. Tack till professor John Quadwo Usai Tutu. Musik laget av Olav Vidsvang och Oskar Skaget. Du har hört en Radio Nova podcast.